This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And welcome to my Halloween special. You know, here at the uh, Serrett household, we're having that age-old discussion. How old is too old to trick-or-treat? How old is too old? And our twin boys, North and Zach, they just turned 13 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, imagine now, Zach has size 12 shoes. North is getting close to my height. Zachary now towers above me. So the four of us were sitting around the breakfast table, me, North, Zach, the mighty Aphrodite, and we discussed it. We discussed it at length. What is the cutoff age to stop dressing up and going door to door asking for candy. We must have talked for an hour and the boys made their arguments. The mighty Aphrodite made her points very well known. I made my argument, but in the end I had to put my foot down. I said, listen, family, I've heard your points, but I've made my decision. I'm going. I want candy. I've got my costume and all picked out and no one is going to stop me. And I don't want to hear anything more about it. So, so there. Anyway, case closed. Uh, we've got uh, two hours of ghost stories, tales of high strangeness, hauntings, you name it. And Jim Harold, one of the, uh, the top podcasters in North America, uh, my friend from Cleveland is standing by. Jim is the host of several wildly successful podcasts, the Paranormal Podcast, and Campfire, and a series of books uh, based on the Campfire podcast. I've had Jim on Conspiracy Unlimited a number of times, and I've been on his podcast, but this is, I believe, his first time on the radio program. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, Steve Asher is a former prison guard from Kentucky, and he joins me in hour two to talk about haunted Kentucky and high strangeness. Uh, including the uh, Kentucky State Penitentiary, some haunting activity there where he worked, and I believe his father worked as well. At the bottom of hour two, David John Oates and Christian Cadieux from Reverse Speech Radio return uh, with some spooky reversals. We wanted to bring David back on before he flies off to Australia next week. He's been here a couple of weeks. We've had him on live in studio 
And uh, it's been a great time. Uh, Before we get rolling, I just want to remind you that if you haven't already done so, get on up to strangeplanet.ca. That's my website, strangeplanet.ca, and register your email. It's easy. It's fast. And once you've registered, you're going to start receiving my newsletter, Inner Sanctum. It's absolutely free, and it debuts our first issue in just a couple of days, strangeplanet.ca. And incidentally, once you're on the website, from there, you can link up to this radio program, my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited, and uh, my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And uh, by the way, we are streaming live on YouTube uh, tonight, audio and video. Uh, It's always a great pleasure to spend time with one of the great storytellers, a podcasting pioneer, author, uh, the Paranormal Podcast, and Campfire. Uh, Jim Harold, welcome. How are you? Do we have Jim there? Hello? I'm not hearing. Hey, Jim, how are you? Now you're hearing me. Hi, Richard. Good to talk to you. I think it must be the Halloween gremlins, huh? No doubt. So how are things on your side of Lake Erie, my friend? Oh, really, really great. And your opening monologue, I I thought, you know, maybe uh, in my case, I think 50 is the cutoff. So I've got another year left. So I'm going to I'm right there with you. Maybe we can coordinate costumes. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I've already mapped out the neighborhood. I know who's giving away the candy apples, which are highly coveted. And, uh, you know, who's giving out the uh, the rockets, which I'm not particularly fond of. So and I've got a couple of extra costume changes so I can double up on the good houses. That's the way we roll here. That, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. <laughs> so uh, congratulations. I see on Libsyn.com, which is uh, your podcasting platform and mine, uh, that you are like in the, the Hall of Fame there. They've got your photograph uh, up there on the uh, on the on the homepage along with uh, some of the other luminaries in the podcasting world. And what are you up to about, is it 40 million unique downloads I read recently? That's what, uh, that's what the statistics say. And, uh, it's been a, it's been great. I mean, I started this for fun. I had worked in radio behind the scenes, not behind the mic and just started it as a hobby. So you know, years later to be able to turn it into a full-time career and be on the air and talk to people all around the world about their spooky stories, it's been a real blessing. And uh, Campfire, uh, how many years have you been doing Campfire? Just a few months ago, celebrated the 10th anniversary of that, and that was just kind of a a lark. You know, I uh, had my main show that I started uh, 15, 14 years ago, the Paranormal Podcast, and uh, one week I didn't have a guest. And I said, well, I'll just have callers, uh, listeners, call in with their stories. And that special episode was so popular, and uh, I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Why not make this its own show? And actually, Campfire, I think, is the show that resonates the most with people, and that's why I've been able to do this full time. That show has really kind of driven it. Right, and because it, it speaks to... I think, and you and I have talked about this before, but it's worth repeating, the idea of sitting around a campfire and and telling stories, sharing stories, there's something incredibly uh, primordial about that, something almost, it speaks to an innate need in the human condition, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think it is, and it's the funniest thing, Richard, and we talked about this as well, 
you know, you could talk to almost the most dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. Somebody says, I don't believe any of this stuff. But the thing is this. You know, what happens is they'll, they'll, they'll go on about how they don't believe in anything, and they'll say, but there was this one time, and let me mm-hmm. tell you what happened. <laughs> so I think everybody, most people have that one time at least, and if they don't, they know somebody they love and trust who has. Right. And tell us a little bit about Campfire for those who haven't heard it. What what types of stories? It's not just limited to ghost stories. It's it's all about high strangeness, right? Exactly. I mean, we do everything from cryptids to UFOs to ghost stories, traditional ghost stories. And then what I call, and these are my favorite ones, they're uh, very much in the high strangeness camp of head scratchers, kind of like what was that all about? And a lot of times the, the storyteller will say, I really don't know what it was about. I just know it was really, really weird. To me, that always lends uh, a degree of credibility to a story. When someone, they're, they're scratching their heads too because they don't have it all figured out. They're not saying, well, this is what I saw and this is what it was. They're saying, I don't know what the heck happened, but it, as far as I can tell, it happened and here it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the thing is, is that a lot of times I get people like that. You know, you get people who are maybe more sensitive and they say, you know, this happens to me on a regular basis. But sometimes the stories I appreciate, I appreciate them all. But the ones I appreciate the most are somebody who says, well, nothing strange has ever happened to me before. But listen to this. This one was Mm -hmm. really wild. You shared, uh, we talked about this on my podcast recently, and you shared this story. It has to do with a roadhouse <laughs> and a, a couple that, uh, this is a mind blower, and you tell it so well. Can you share that with us? Oh, yes, yes. This was from T.I. up in Michigan, and at the time she was up in the uh, state of Wisconsin here in the United States. And her and a friend of hers, Bob, went to see a band play, and it was kind of in this set-off bar in a rural area. So they closed the place down, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and they were going back home. It was about an hour to where they they both lived. They lived separately. They were just friends. But uh, they were driving back to their hometown. And uh, anyhow, T.I. tells Bob, she says, Bob, you know, uh, nature is calling. And they were still a good ways from their home, maybe 45 minutes. And he said, well, you know, there's nothing out here. You've got the bushes. And she said, well, no, that's okay. Just drive fast, drive fast. So anyway, they go down the road another 15, 20 minutes, and they happen upon this set-off bar. And it has neon lights going, and there's cars, and you can actually hear the music from the outside. The joint is jumping, as they say. And they say, well, that's kind of weird. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. This makes no sense. This should be closed down. But let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. Let's go in and uh, take advantage of it. So... uh, Bob went to the bar and got a couple drinks, and T.I. Uh, took care of the situation and came back, and they were having their drink. And uh, Bob said, you know, I'm really glad we came here because there's this great mural on the wall. And uh, it's an old West mural, and I've heard a lot about it, never seen it. And Bob was an artist, so he said, let's take a look at it. And it was really neatly laid out. And it was a bar, and there were some saloon girls, and there were swinging doors, and all the things you would expect out of a, a Western, like you used to see in the movies and TV. Right, right. And the weird thing was, is that the people 
the real live humans in the bar were in the picture. And they thought, well, that's odd. And Bob says, well, you know, this, these may be regulars, and this is just like an homage to them, okay? So anyway, this guy comes up. He, he, they have an old jukebox with records, like one of those old bubbler, Wolitzer. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. That, and, and he plays Chubby Checker to Let's Twist Again. And he goes up to T.I., and he, he doesn't talk, but he motions like he wants her to dance. And he said, had these old, nasty brown teeth. And that's the other thing. Pete, nobody's talking. They're just kind of smiling and kind of, kind of, kind of strange. And he, I said, uh, uses a cane and showed him the cane and said, no, no, I can't dance. And she said she was glad she had that to kind of nicely tell him that she didn't want to dance. So anyway, they're playing chubby checker and they keep uh, looking at this, uh, this mural. And the people are smiling at them, but not exactly talking. It's kind of weird. And they look by the swinging doors, and they notice something they didn't notice at the beginning. There's two figures in the door, very misty. Mm-hmm. One's shorter, one's taller. One's a woman, one's a man. And they look, and it seems to develop more and more like an old Polaroid picture. And all of a sudden, T.I. notices... It seems to be a woman and a man. The woman has curly hair and boots. T.I. has curly hair and boots. And then the female figure, a cane, comes into view. And T.I. and Bob look at each other and realize they're developing into those doors in the picture. Oh, and they say, let's my. get out of here. <laughs> so anyway, they get up to go out, and the people start kind of motioning back and saying, come back, come back, come back. They closed the door, and T.I. said the whole place went dark like it had never been open. No neon signs, no music, and oh, by the way, there is a car, one car in the parking lot. They get ready to leave, and they said, let's get out of here. And uh, Bob kind of peels out. They leave the parking lot, but T.I., is a much braver sort, a braver person than I am. And in a couple of days, she goes back, either with her friend or her sister, I can't remember who. And they go in, and, uh, you know, T.I.'s wondering, what did we get trapped in? Was this like a Twilight Zone or another dimension? Would we have been lost in that picture? She's just puzzled. So she goes back. She walks in. She sees a jukebox, sure enough. But it's not one of those old vinyl, Wolitzer bubblers. No, it's a modern CD jukebox. Oh, and she looks at the selections. No let's twist again. No chubby checker. Then she talks to the bartender, who happens to be a woman. And she says, young lady, uh, I was just here the other day. It was, you know, the place was vibrant, lots of people here, and there was this really young, good-looking bartender. Where's he at? And (laughs) the woman said, Young guy, bartender, we don't have anybody like that. It's just me and my elderly father. <laughs> and with that, T.I. <laughs> and her friend or her sister left the Roadhouse Saloon wondering, did they get stuck in the Twilight Zone? Now, there is a little kicker to this, Richard. <laughs> this place exists. My listeners oh, it does. have gone oh. and have taken pictures. And there is a mural. There's nobody in the swinging doors. There is an old Western mural. mural. There is a Roadhouse Saloon. I've seen the pictures. In fact, I've even called the place trying to get interviews with no luck. Um, the place Amazing. exists. Uh-huh. 
That's so there cool. There you go. That's the Roadhouse Saloon, and that's the ultimate head-scratcher for me. I'll say. Now, uh, has that found its way, that particular story, into one of the Campfire books, which have has been a wonderful uh, spinoff of the podcast? You've, I think you're on, is it book number, volume number five? Yes, I've gone through five. I've been a couple of years tardy here putting out a new one, but we're going to get on that. I wanted to put one out this year, but just got too busy. But yes, I believe that may be in book two, I think, off the top of my head. But we have five books, and each one has 70 stories, 70 of the best stories from Camp Fire, and they're available on uh, Kindle and in paperback. So people really seem to love having the, the stories kind of as keepsake and another way to, to, to share the content with folks. Right. Uh, that's a great story. Is there another one that maybe sticks with you because it's not only left you scratching your head, but maybe it's kind of disturbing. It's it it it, it haunts you in a way. Well, uh, this one is really kind of haunting, and it really makes you wonder what in the world happened. Um, this was from a police officer. He didn't give his town for obvious reasons. It was in the American Southwest, and he was working a graveyard shift. And they got a call that there was a naked man who was jumping off of a bridge and and acting like he was feral, like he was wild. And they got there, him and his partner, and the guy was, you know, his mouth was bloody. Uh, He didn't seem to speak English or anything. He more kind of growled and grunted. Um, they, They finally got him subdued. The guy, I won't go into graphic detail, but he relieved himself in a most disgusting oh, way while they're trying to arrest him. Just really wild. So anyway, they're, they're the local cops, and they're taking care of him. All of a sudden, nobody called him, but Highway Patrol uh, comes up and says, we'll take this from here. And the weird thing was, A, nobody called him, and B, usually uh, our caller works in that area. And he knows the guys who work highway patrol. He never noticed these guys. But he took down the badge number of the one patrolman because he had to fill out his report, right? So, and and this guy was just, he said it was like he was a, a wild man. I mean, he was biting, he was gnashing, he was scratching, he was grunting, he was doing other things that I won't mention, as I said. So anyway, uh, and then an ambulance pulls up. And the officer doesn't recognize the ambulance service either, but takes down all the information. And he goes back to the station, and he's talking to some of his colleagues. And he said, you know, do you know uh, highway patrol people by this description? Because they, they know these guys, and nobody could place it. They, he called one of the dispatchers. He tried to run the, the badge number, and he tried to run the ambulance number. They came up with nothing. And this almost sounds like to me, Richard, like, and this fits perfectly for the conspiracy show, like, uh, right. you know, a governmental experiment gone wrong and, and somebody <laughs> being loose from a lab and they send out this fake police and this fake ambulance service. And this guy, this caller, uh, I believe his name was Dave, he was just so sincere. And he said, you know, I've been a cop for quite a while, and I've never seen anything like it. Nobody knew who these guys were. Usually the highway patrol's very pleasant and collegial, and they get along well, and these guys were gruff. I'm like, oh, we'll take it from here. And this ambulance service from this unknown company, and every check he ran 
came up total blank. So that, that to me is very disturbing. I'll say very disturbing, <laughs> bizarre. One of the things I love about not only your podcast, but the, just the stories, they are, they are truly original. You know, there are, there are ghost stories and, and, and tales of high strangeness. And then there are legends that tend to get sort of repeated. They become part of uh, culture. Right. And, you know, everyone has, for example, uh, not everyone, but the Crybaby Bridge, which is an, a, a story where, you know, it seems like every small town right. in middle America has a crybaby bridge. It turns yeah. out it's just, you know, rusty bolts in the bridge, but it sounds like a crying baby. But what you bring to the table, Jim, these are truly original. I mean, I've never heard these before. No, they they are. And I do. And occasionally you'll get things that are somewhat, you know. Uh, derivative or I've heard something like that. But the thing is, Richard, and I'm sure when you do these types of things, you get a similar thing. Man, I've heard it all. Ten years of doing this, hundreds and hundreds of calls. uh, I've heard it all. And then somebody will call in with a new one. I had one like that a couple weeks ago, if you want me to share it. And it's not, it's really, you asked me if one haunted or disturbed me. This one kind of did. But I don't know how I feel about it. There's a couple different ways to take it. Let's uh, let's tell that story. I'll get you to tell that story on the other side. You know what else I want you to tell? This is a story you brought to my attention. Uh, that, and I went on to feature that story on my late podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's the story of the singing fisherman, the late, great Johnny Horton. And do you remember? You know the story I'm talking oh, yeah. about. Oh, yeah. All right. I'll get you to tell that one because no one tells it like Jim Harold. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And welcome back. Jim Harold is among America's most popular paranormal podcast hosts with his free programs, the Paranormal Podcast and Jim Harold's Campfire. And he's really developed a loyal following over the last 14 years that spans the globe. After over a a decade of working in the business uh, side of media, he decided it was time to dust off his own broadcasting uh, training and step back behind the microphone. And uh, Jim has a lifelong interest in the paranormal combined with his love of broadcasting and technology uh, have resulted in some of the most successful podcasts of their type to date. In fact, he has recently been uh, honored at Libsyn.com as uh, as one of the great podcasters in North America. We're happy to have him here. And he's, uh, uh, well, we're kicking around some uh, kick, uh, ghost stories and, and tales of high strangeness. And uh, before we get to the Johnny Horton story, you were going to share a, a, another one that, that you say kind of haunts and disturbs you. Yeah, because part of it makes me feel good, and the other part makes me go, huh. So this is just recently in the last month. Uh, we had the caller, Kevin. He's from the American South. And he called up and he told me this story. This happened to him about 10 years ago. He was sitting around his house and he was watching TV. He was probably in his early 40s at the time. And the phone rang. He didn't recognize the number, but he picked it up and he said hello. And he said on the other end, there was a very kind and uh, gentle voice uh, on the line. said, Kevin, how are you doing? I, I want to check in on you. And Kevin, figuring, well, this guy's being nice. I'll be nice. He said, uh, well, I, I'm doing fine. And, and this gentleman on the other end of the line says, well, you know, Kevin, I haven't heard from you in a while. And I just, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. I'm going to be seeing you soon. I wanted to make sure you're doing all right. And 
Kevin said, well, you know, he thought to himself, I better find out who this is. This guy might show up at my house. <laughs> Maybe this is somebody I know. I'm just not uh, making the making the connection here. And uh, Kevin says, well, sir, uh, thank you for checking in on me. Uh, who is this, by the way? And the voice on the other end of the line says, well, Kevin, this, this is Jesus. And Kevin says, well, thank you. Thank you very much for calling. And then he hangs up figuring. He was nice, but he, he hung up figuring that, okay, somebody's pranking me. A week later, Kevin has a massive heart attack and almost dies. He was so close to death that they had, at the hospital, they had called the family and called the chaplain in to be there when he passed. He narrowly missed death. Uh, to, and he's gone on to have some other health crises, but he's been okay. But the thing is, he's never been able to place that call. He, At the time it happened, he looked at his call history, and all the calls were there. And this reminds me of your your one story, all the calls were there except for this one. Mm. And, um, you know, who knows, Richard? Who knows? You know, it's one of wow. those, those, it reminds me of your R. Gary Patterson story. But the thing yes. is, is that, who am I to say that Kevin's making that up? And, yeah, could have it been somebody pranking him? Yes. But, boy, what a coincidence. A week before he has a near-fatal heart attack, and the voice on the other end not only says he's Jesus, he says, I'm going to be seeing you soon. It's something right. that makes you think. Right. Something that makes uh, you think. You know, it's, you know, of course, it's possible he was pranked. It's, it might even be likely that he was pranked. But to me, those are life. Those are faith-affirming stories. I love those stories. You mentioned yeah. uh, our Gary, uh, and I won't repeat the story. I, I've told it you know, a number of times, I, I, and you were kind enough to have me on. Uh, your your podcast to share that story. Uh, I will ask one question. <laughs> Do you think that would ever make it into one of the campfire volumes? If you wanted to, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is such a great story that you had. And the fact that it, again, a, a series of strange, quote, coincidences, but the timing of that call after you know, after he supposedly passed and so forth. No, that's a try. I consider that to be uh, one of the greatest campfire stories we've had. Wow. Well, you know, I I asked, it's a way of preserving Gary's memory as well. Uh, you know, obviously he lives on with with so many uh, generations of students that he taught and so forth, but it would not, it'd be nice to have that story sort of captured on permanent record not just out there in the ether, but uh, in one of your fine books. I, you know that would be uh, well. That would I be a will great put honor. it in. I will put it in the next one then, because I think that it is. Um, it's a great campfire story, and it kind of speaks to that story and, and some of these stories I've been telling tonight. It's just the 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 best phrases, and I know it's a big phrase for like a Linda Moulton Howe and thing. High strangeness. Mm. They're not stories that really fit in a category. They're just strange, and I believe they're true. Right, and it it, uh, it it's it it remains a head scratcher for me, and the most the strangest thing that has happened in my life, uh, bar none. And I continue to grapple with it. And for those who want to hear the full story, uh, they can go to uh, uh, that was on Campfire, right? I believe Not the Paranormal it was Podcast. I believe right. it was campfire. I think so. Yeah. So wow. they can go to uh, they can go to the website 
and yeah, uh, yeah. Prob- probably find that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story. We may, I may even uh, include it in uh, this week's Halloween special. So that'll be the best way for him to find it. I will put it in this week's Campfire Halloween special. How about that? Oh, what an honor. Uh, give folks the uh, the website so they can uh, listen and subscribe to the podcasts. Sure. It's jimharold.com, J-I-M-H-A-R-O-L-D.com, and that should be up sometime Thursday. So I hope everybody will get a chance to tune in, and we'll, of course, include uh, Richard's story of our Gary Patterson. It's a very dramatic one. Fantastic. Uh, I'd like to start the um, the Johnny Horton story. If we run into the break, we can continue after. Uh, but I uh, I did an episode on the, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone after hearing about this from you, and yeah. uh, I did a little, a little research in it. It it is a, an amazing story. Johnny Horton back in the early '60s, they called him the Singing Fisherman, and uh, all of his songs sort of contained a, a wonderful history lesson. He didn't write them, uh, but he he sang them so well. the the uh, uh, the sinking of uh, the um, uh, sink the Bismarck, the Bismarck and sink the Battle Bismarck, of yeah. New Orleans and uh, north to Alaska. They had that kind of, as you said, Johnny Reb. They had that kind of historical feel. That was kind of his his niche in the late fifties. There, right, right. So tell me about Johnny Horton and his musical partner. Yeah, he had a very good friend by the name of Merle Kilgore, who actually went on to become Hank Williams Jr. manager. He was an artist in his own right, and he was a very successful songwriter. And probably the song he was best known for was the huge Johnny Cash hit, Ring of Fire, which later was the name of uh, the biopic made about Johnny Cash and his life. So anyway, um, Johnny Horton uh, had talked with Merle Kilgore, who was... I think his best friend, uh, they were contemporaries uh, in country music. They had talked about the other side, and Horton was supposedly a big believer in it. Well, anyway, they had worked out a code uh, that if one of the other passed, they would get the message back, kind of Houdini style, right? And the phrase was, the drummer is a rummer, and he can't hold the beat. So they worked this out. And uh, actually, if folks want to read this story, it's on uh, NashvilleMusicGuide.com, Growing Up Kilgore, the Johnny Horton story, by uh, Kilgore's son, Stephen Kilgore. Right. And, so and that, anyway, that, code, uh, that code phrase, Jim, was came from Horton's disdain for drunk musicians. He had a thing right. about drunks, right? Yeah, that's my understanding, yes. Uh, and again, it was drummer. The drummer is a rummer, and he can't hold the beat. Well, ironically, uh, I guess a week after they made this code, according to Stephen's uh, account of this, um, a drunk driver hit Johnny Horton's Cadillac in a head-on collision, and uh, Johnny Horton was killed. So time went on, and uh, one night there was a rainout of a baseball game, I I think uh, in Cincinnati. Yes. And... uh, Basically, what happened was, is the disc jockey or whatever said, well, here's a song from a friend of mine, Merle Kilgore, Ring of Fire. Well, apparently, a group of psychics had heard this. They were not country music fans. But they got a hold of Kilgore, and they said, Mr. Kilgore, uh, we're psychics. We don't know anything about country music. 
but someone has been communicating with us from the other side, and they've been he's been communicating your name, Merle Kilgore. And up until we heard you on the radio, we had no idea who you were. And uh, Kilgore talked to them and said, Mr. Kilgore, it's the strangest thing, though. He, uh, this, this is Johnny. This is a Johnny who's trying to talk to you. And, uh, and he said he had a message, but we can't make any sense of it whatsoever. So Kilgore waits, and he said, yeah, the, the message doesn't make any sense. It's the drummer is a rummer, and he can't hold the beat. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Kilgore was uh, absolutely freaked out, and uh, there you have it. And I heard this story, uh, I mean, probably in the 80s or 90s. I heard it retold by the famous uh, country music uh, DJ uh, Ralph Emery from WSM, that big, huge uh, clear channel down in Nashville. And um, I just thought that was um, that was uh, just a I never forgot that story all these years. So when I heard you had the rock and roll Twilight Zone, I said, well, it's not quite rock and roll, but I think uh, country music and rock and roll are definitely cousins. And I thought that was one that was worthy for the show because it really is right. remarkable. Because that is, I mean, if you believe Kilgore's accounting, now he's since passed as well, but if you believe Kilgore's accounting of this, what other explanation would there be other than proof of life after death and communication for beyond the grave? Absolutely. I love those stories, and I love the way you tell that story. Jim, hold on. We'll take another time out. Come back. Uh, more tales from around Jim Harold's campfire when we come back. I'm Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Jim Harold is here. I can't believe I've not had you on the radio show. What a horrible transgression on my part. I mean, I've had you on the, the podcast, but I'm so glad we're rectifying that. And uh, I promise you're going to come back again and again. I, you know, Jim, I could just listen to you uh, tell these tales all night. Um, oh, thank you. I, as we, you know, talking about Halloween and, and um, uh, my boys are um, heading over to their uncle and aunt's later this week and they're going to get together with their other cousins and they're going to have a scary movie night and they're going to sleep over. What to you, what for you is sort of the ultimate, uh, scary film? Do you have, you know, for me, it's, I love the hammer films, Dracula and Frankenstein and all of those. What, what is it for you? I love things that, uh, I love a, a little psychological thriller to mine. Uh, some of the scary ones for me are things like the shining or, mm. um, one that really has always creeped me out is Rosemary's Baby, you know, going yes. back a little bit. Um, certainly The Exorcist, although I find that disturbing uh, to a point. But the thing is, is that I like those ones that have that little psychological uh, element. I mean, you know, with the, with the Friday the 13th and all the hostel and all the movies they have now, I mean, uh, how much, uh, you know, corn syrup, uh, fake blood can you look at? I mean, that doesn't do a lot for me. I, I prefer, uh, movies like you talked about, some of those old classics, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and all that great stuff, and then yes. the psychological thrillers. Of course, the Hitchcock movies as well. I'm a big fan of, uh, Hitchcock. That's, that's the stuff that I love. 
Right. C-SPAN is also very scary. <laughs> oh, you, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, you know, you guys just got through an election, but man, down here, it's uh, it's a madhouse. It's uh, it's crazier than any hall of mirrors or haunted house. <laughs> you mentioned the exorcist, and we actually have a rule in this house. It's the mighty Aphrodite. She and I'm happy to oblige. That movie is is never to be watched in this house. We're not I to come understand. home from the... I understand. We're not to come. Yeah, we're not to bring the. You know, we can't go to the library and bring home a copy. It is not to 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 cross the threshold because I do believe uh, that when you some when you watch those types of movies, it's almost you're opening yourself up. It's almost an invitation. What do you think? Well, well it might be. And boy, you are a master of a segue because I have a Ouija board story. If you want to hear it, <laughs> ooh, would love to. Lay it on me, brother. So this this was from a few years ago, very early on the podcast. And um, this young lady, I believe she was from North or South Carolina, somewhere there. Her and uh, a friend, and they were teenage girls. They thought, like a lot of kids, they were having a sleepover. And they said, won't it be fun to play with the Ouija board? So basically they get the Ouija board out. They turn out all the lights. And they have candles, and then they have a lava lamp. Uh, Richard, I'm sure you remember lava lamps that have that glue oh, yes. stuff in the middle. Yes. So anyway, they're asking it different things, and they're getting responses. And the one girl says, "Well," and basically this this uh, thing claims that it's a demon. Uh, on the responses they're getting on the board, and the one girl says, "Well, if you're a demon, show us." Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the candles go out, and then the lava lamp, which is on, it's like a red lava lamp, the gloop. They start looking at it, and it starts forming, and it starts forming, and they see what looks like a face. And then they see what looks like teeth, gnashing teeth, bearing teeth, and the face of a devil. And then our caller said they immediately closed the board. And the gloop went back to just plain old gloop. So maybe they did invite something in, and maybe it came through a lava lamp. Right, right. I was on uh, uh, Coast last night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, Friday night, rather. Friday night, we did open lines, and I asked for stories about uh, bad experiences with Ouija boards. And, uh, w- w- I mean, I don't, I don't trifle with them. I can't believe, you know, that they sell those in, in toy stores. Is it Parker Brothers or whoever does? Yeah, I think, but, it, uh, I think it is Parker Brothers. I mean, there is sort of a protocol. I mean, if you don't close the session, the Ouija board session properly, you leave that portal open. Uh, you know, who knows what what will walk through it? And, and I had callers who had, uh, you know, been involved in a Ouija board session. It wasn't closed. And they had practically a lifetime of poltergeist activity, unexplained phenomena in their house, sickness, things like that. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's psychosomatic. I don't know, but I don't think it's to be trifled with. Would you well, allow yeah. your, did you allow your kids to play with a Ouija board? We've, my wife does have one from when she was teenage years, but we've never brought it out and let them play with it. No, I'm not, I'm not for that. In fact, we probably should get rid of it. <laughs> but, but Good luck. That, they keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I have 
somebody who told me that, that they had a Ouija board that kept, like, reappearing. I even had one claim, one person claim that they had one that walked across a room inchworm style. If you remember that old toy, oh. the little riding toy, an inchworm? Yes, or, yes. Or an actual inchworm. It, it, and then he said they tried to burn it, and it wouldn't burn, and then when they burnt the planchette, it actually burnt. But, but um, I think about... Here's what I think about the... Um, Ouija board, or one of my thoughts about it, is that I've had people on the shows like Karen Dahlman and the late Rosemary Ellen mm. Giley, who, by the way, was just fantastic. Yeah, and a I miss her. And a good person. But anyway, uh, and then he would say, well, it's just a tool. Well, a chainsaw is just a tool as well. <laughs> now, you see these guys that can take a chainsaw, right? And they can make these beautiful sculptures or ice sculptures or wood sculptures. Now, Richard, if you hand me a running chainsaw, the thing I'm most likely to cut is my arm and cut it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe there's some use for it if you are well-versed in it. But, I, uh, you know, I, I think it can be uh, dangerous if used in the wrong way. I agree. Not for amateurs. Uh, Jim, no. stay put. We'll uh, we'll come back. One more segment of great stories from the great podcaster, Jim Harold, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Joyce is with us talking about underground bases, UFO military bases uh, in uh, uh, North Carolina, her home state, not her home state, her adopted state. Uh, what what brought you to North Carolina, by the way? Um, that kind of gets into my strange life. Um, I've always felt like I was drawn to come up here. And actually, in a spiritual message, I was told, don't worry about it. When it's time for you to go there, it will be really, really clear. Well, at the time, I was living on a lake in the Ocala National Forest, and we had a huge drought, and um, I decided to apply to teach at the Cherokee Indian Reservation, which is very close to where I am. Um, And we took it as a sign because the place where I lived, when we returned to it after being at this interview, the... um, There were four ways into the forest where we were, and I literally saw one tree fall and cross one road. Eventually, all but one road had been um, blocked by trees falling because it was so dry. So you have sandy soil and not water, and the trees come down. And I just took that as a sign, well, I think it's time to go to North Carolina. So coming up here had nothing... Um, to do with UFOs, though I had seen UFOs in Florida when I lived down there. I used to live 
uh, on the beach between Patrick Air Force Base and the Kennedy Space Center. And um, I saw a number of UFOs down there. The, the, the military bases, uh, do you suspect that they are to be found across the United States in remote, very remote locations? For example, uh, are we likely to see underground bases where, wherever we have large national parks, forested areas? Uh, I believe it's to their advantage where they can't be observed easily. Um, and that's that would be true of all these places. And if they will, the the government will actually buy up land to create buffer zones. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, there is a facility beneath um, Sugarloaf Mountain, which is near the Chimney Rock facility in Lake and the government has brought up uh, bought additional uh, parkland so that this place can only be approached by one road. It can't be approached from, let's say. Well, just one road in now. And uh, the first time I was there, that road was a hairpin gravel road all the way up. Uh, not easy to travel. Um, it has since been um, upgraded. Uh, huge electrical cables have been put in. Um, we actually talked to people who had seen as many as 20 of those huge electric trucks at one time on that road. And again, it was a narrow gravel road originally. And they installed cables that were like 10 inches in diameter that went up the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there are only eight houses. So there is no excuse for having that kind of uh, electrical, electrical power being sent up there. And when you get up to the top, then those cables go under the ground. Um, so... I don't know where I started out with all that, but uh, well, I was asking, got a glimpse of yes. the electrical power that's there. I was asking you about the remote location of these underground bases because that, that leads me to this question, and that is the work of David Politas. Uh, of Canada for or um, missing 411, this series of uh, books detailing all of the people that go missing in national parks uh, across North America. So I'm just wondering if there might be a connection between these UFO underground bases and all of these missing persons in national parks. And of course, the National Park Service is very, very reluctant to release data on this. Um, I don't know what his final conclusion is about all these disappearances. I know that at least at one point he was trying to blame them on the Bigfoot, which I totally, totally disagree with. Um, but the more I learn, um, the more I get into this weird world I really didn't wish to have existed, but it does. And um, the Nazis are still operating, as I said, in Antarctica, and they continue to use slave labor. So where is the slave labor coming from? Um, that's one thing. They, uh, another thing is that there is uh, a group of um, aliens that some, the little people call the dominators, and they're very afraid of the dominators. And they say the dominators refer to the earth as the farm, uh, and that this is, they like to, it's so gross, but they like to eat people, especially um, young children, which might explain why some, so many young children are disappearing. But we've had uh, an, 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 a whole lot of uh, people with special expertise, medical people, uh, scientists, who have also disappeared. 
and perhaps they're being taken so that their knowledge can be used uh, for these unknown powers. So let's, in the time that remains, talk about the Nazi connection. These Antarctic bases, these joint Nazi uh, alien bases uh, that uh, perhaps are being uncovered now because of uh, the melting ice, which is perhaps why so many dignitaries are flocking down there to see what's going on. But what do those bases in the Antarctic uh, that were uh, sort of joint Nazi bases, joint Nazi alien bases uh, that were begun in the 1940s. What do they have to do with North Carolina in 2018? What do the, what do the Nazis have to do with North Carolina in this uh, day and age? One of the if people want to get into a lot of good research. William Tompkins, uh, who died, I think, about a year ago, uh, was involved in uh, Navy intelligence uh, during World War II. He was also involved at NASA at the very highest levels and worked with people like uh, Werner von Braun. Um, his book is just jam-packed with uh, information. So anybody who um, wants to, to really delve into this, he's a good source. And he is one of the people that I found very credible who talks about this reptilian uh, Nazi alliance and uh, um, when you get that information from somebody with his kind of credentials you have to take a big gulp and go oh my goodness this could really really be true Um, the article that we have um, called Antarctica reptilian aliens help Nazis uh, I do quote uh, William Tompkin to some degree uh, regarding that Uh, so your listeners might when they have a few moments enjoy taking a look at that article but but could you maybe just maybe give us a, a bit of a synopsis? The the Nazis have they supposedly lost World War II, but I don't think they really lost the big battle. There is evidence of Nazi influence in our corporations and in our government. Um, I did a story on William Pollock, who was another man with excellent credentials, uh, who's no longer living. Uh, He did the high security um, designs for Air Force One and for Area 51. And he um, had an experience where he was at Tonopah, which is a little bit more unknown to the public than Area 51, but they're both in Nevada. And he was called to a meeting um, at Tonopah, And the building that they met in, this airplane came in and cruised right up to the door. A man got out with a bodyguard and I think a briefcase, and he was dressed in um, like high-style European uh, clothing and shoes. This man went to the back of the meeting, listened to everyone report on what they had been doing. Um, At the very end, he spoke just briefly. He was never identified. But when he did speak, it was in high German. Um, Bill Pollack uh, came to the awful conclusion that uh, the Nazis are very much involved in what's going on in our country today. And he says it's much more extensive uh, than what we realize. Which is, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Joseph Farrell has written a great deal about this, the Nazi international, how the the German army surrendered at the uh, close of the Second World War, but the 
the third, the, the officers of the Third Reich, the, the, uh, the Vice Chancellor, etc., never did. So the Nazis never surrendered. So the idea, I guess, is that they moved their base of operation, uh, from Berlin, uh, to where? South America, the Antarctic, and eventually to the United States. That's my understanding also from all the research I've done. You're right. So as we wrap up hour one uh, here, Mary, uh, what is the takeaway here in terms of these underground bases? And what are you going to be doing uh, next in terms of investigating these bases? I should mention one more. I, I told you that there were five, and the one that I forgot to mention is under Mount Mitchell. So for those who are interested, there's one under the Pisgah Astronomical Research Institute, one under uh, uh, Glenville or Linville Gorge, one under Sugarloaf Mountain near Chimney Rock, one under the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and one under Mount Mitchell. So those are the ones that I have been fortunate enough to uh, meet people, usually with high security clearance, who just want to blow the whistle on what's going on. So um, I'm really bad. I start walk, uh, talking, and then I forget what your original question was. That's all right. Um, I, I just, I guess, what's well, what's the next stage here in terms of your investigating these bases? Are you looking for more whistleblowers? Um, I wasn't looking for any of these whistleblowers. Um, they all contacted me initially uh, because of the website. And so they have really sought me out, and most of them have spent time checking me out before they decide to share their stories. Um, so I don't know if I can make the stories happen, uh, because up to this point, I have not been the one who's made them happen. All right. Once again, uh, the website is skyshipsovercashiers.com, skyshipsovercashiers.com. And um, uh, where can people get a copy of the book, Underground Bases Hidden in North Carolina? Um, I have all the books available on Amazon. And it's the Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains. There's one, Cherokee Little People Were Real. Um, and the third one is totally different, and it's called Tangible Evidence of Jesus left behind for us to find. They're all available on Amazon. If you want to learn a little bit more about each one, go to the website, skyshipsovercashers.com, and do a quick scroll to the bottom of the editor's corner, and there'll be a little summary of each of the books. Mary, you good to talk Cherokee little people when we come back? Uh, if you like. Excellent. All right, stand by. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to everyone who's 
tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hello to all of you who listen to the podcast, those of you who subscribe to the Conspiracy Show app, and of course those who listen and watch on the Conspiracy Show YouTube channel. Please hit the red sub button if you haven't already done so. The live stream, incidentally, the YouTube live stream will resume Sunday, September the 16th. Mary Joyce is with us. She is the founder of the website SkyshipsOverCashier.com, and she's an author, researcher, living in North Carolina. Uh, in Hour 1, we talked underground military bases and UFO bases. This hour, the Cherokee Little People legend. Mary Joyce, welcome back to Hour 2 of The Conspiracy Show. How are you holding on there? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Terrific. Skyships over cashiers. Uh, dot com. Just give us a little tour of that website. What are we going to find there? Uh, let me just kind of read off the headings on the home page. We have different categories. We have Editor's Corner, where I do videos and podcasts, and there's information about my books and things of that nature. Uh, we have um, Skyship Photos. We have uh, Deep Throat Testimonies, which come from uh, people who are usually in high places and do not want to be identified. Uh, we also have a section called Global Links and Undercover Operations. Uh, undercover, uh, undercover Operations and Deep Throat Testimonies are kind of related um, because many times we're dealing with the people who do not want to be identified. Uh, we know who they are, but uh, they don't want it out there publicly. Um, we have Global Links. Um, we have Cosmic Miracles. Uh, we have one on health and safety, and um, I think I've covered most of them there. And, and one that's called Skyship Articles, because that just is a catch-all where we have cutting-edge topics that uh, are cutting-edge but no, don't necessarily fit into one of our categories. Right. Now, how is it that people have come to you now, whistleblowers, people who want to talk about underground bases and so forth, but how is it that you have sort of established yourself as the go-to person in North Carolina. You know, people trust you. They want to reveal these things to you. For many, many years, I've worked for corporations and big newspapers and things of that nature. When I came to North Carolina, I just took those hats off, and I started managing a health food store because certainly I could help people that way, and I'm interested in that kind of thing. But it also gave me time and energy and freedom to do some of my own projects uh, that you simply don't have time for when you're working for a major corporation. Uh, so that put me in a position that I didn't expect would have so many benefits. When you're working in a health food store, people uh, open up and talk to you. They see you on a regular basis. They, ha they develop a trust. And I can honestly say that uh, many of the stories initially started because of that little management uh, job at a health food store. Uh, that's how I first learned about the little people. That's how I first learned about the underground bases. I don't know if that's how I first heard about Bigfoot or not. That probably came in some other way. But people want to trust you. So that's where the trust started. And uh, when I was dealing with the Cherokee little people and talking to the Cherokee, they, more than other people, uh, aren't going to open up with you unless there has been some sense of trust that's been developed. Otherwise, they're simply not going to talk to you. When I was doing the, um, uh, the book on the Cherokee Little People, I was interviewing old-timers, most of them in their 
probably 80s when I was interviewing them. And when I realized that nobody had their stories, I decided I needed to write them down and preserve them before all these people had, you know, would pass on. If I hadn't gotten in with one of the old timers, I never would have met all the rest. If I had just showed up on somebody's doorstep and said, I hear you know about these little people and these little people tunnels, they probably would not have talked to me because the old mountain people and the Cherokees aren't exactly anxious to talk to you. Right. So let's get into the Cherokee little people. And the book is Cherokee Little People Were Real. These old timers that you talk about, these were people that were working uh, building a university campus, correct? It was back right after World War II. And the first man that uh, opened up to me was well known in the community. He was in his 80s. He had been a World War II hero, had survived the uh, death camp uh, march, uh, had been a pastor in the area for like 40 plus years. He was highly regarded. And uh, again, I met him at this health food store. And we were talking about the little people, at which time I just kind of dismissed the little people as just, you know, old Indian tales. And he said, no, there were really little people. And um, he said that when he was a young man, uh, he was helping with the construction at Western Carolina University. And when they would cut into what supposedly was virgin soil, uh, and this, this soil on the campus is this dense red clay type of soil. And these little tunnels uh, would be like three and a half feet high, um, typically. Um, they would be square cut but they would have a rounded arch at the top, uh, which would make the tunnel more stable. And they would find these when they were putting in sewer lines. They would find them when they were constructing new buildings. And, um, you know, these these uh, people were, many of them, in some aspect of construction. And uh, so one of them would lead me to another one, and I had many interviews on my days off on Saturday around kitchen tables uh, hearing the stories, and... I don't know if any, I think one of the people I interviewed is still living today, so I'm so glad that I did that. And how did they put two and two together that these tunnels were somehow connected to this legend of the Cherokee little people? Did they find fossils? Did they find bits of pottery? They found skeletons. One of the professors uh, in the science department for many years kept what he called a child's uh, skull on his desk like a decorative paperweight. And he said it came, it must have come from the Indian mound that was uh, demolished. Well, um, I think it was a high school English teacher was there one day and picked up this little skull and said, this is not a child's skull. It has all of its wisdom teeth. And so that was a type of evidence also. So when you combine the, t- uh, the tales of the Cherokee about the little people, which you still hear today, and uh, then the little skeleton and the vast network of uh, tunnels found over, uh, you know, quite a large area, um, it becomes rather convincing. What happened to these skeletal remains? Were they stored away somewhere? This is the first time that I've been able to answer this question this way. The last I heard was that some of these things were kept in like um, a forensic vault at the um, university. And then I uh, ran into an anthropology student at Dunkin' Donuts and got into a conversation with her, and uh, she said that within a, a year or maybe two years ago, uh, they had sent all of these things off to the Smithsonian, 
at which time I just groaned because um, I've done reviews on two books. Um, I can't come up with the titles right now, but they're both about um, the tremendous evidence that giant skeletons have been found all over the country uh, going back to the, I think, 1800s. And these were so often shipped off to the Smithsonian and never seen again, never heard of again. And so it appears at this point that the Smithsonian um, chooses to add, they, they want to keep history as we have been taught. They don't want things to change. And so things that are like an anomaly that don't fit in with their idea of history, uh, those things get bar buried. And it's very, very sad. So when I heard that these things had been shipped off to uh, the Smithsonian, I thought, oh, we'll probably never see those again. And um, that's regrettable. And any idea as to how many skeletons were shipped off to the Smithsonian of these little people? I do not know. I only concretely know about the, uh, the little skull with the uh, wisdom teeth uh, that multiple people had seen. So that is, you know, something I absolutely can confirm. Uh, another person who graduated from the anthropology department a number of years ago um, said that they also had two uh, giant skeletons in that forensic repository at the, at the campus and that they had six toes. So um, apparently there was quite a bit uh, that was sent the, to the Smithsonian, and I'm sure those giants went the way of the other giants back into some deep closet at the Smithsonian. Right, right. What about tools or other artifacts uh, affiliated or associated with these little people? The closest thing I know of is a man that I interviewed who is here in Silva. He has his own construction business, and he was uh, involved in a construction project where they had to literally cut away part of a mountain uh, so they could get enough level area to build this facility or building. And in the process, they found these little tunnels. And he said that the uh, you could see tool marks on the inside walls of the um, uh, these little tunnels that uh, you know had been used like a, almost like a, a fork type thing that had been used to uh, um, finish off the walls of the uh, tunnels. And he said the tunnels were as fresh as if they had just been made and they had cut into a mountain that had been there forever uh, but the soil was still damp and moist and uh, you know it wasn't full of cobwebs or anything that would indicate it had been neglected for a long time so these old timers these are not Cherokee what is the legend of the little people that comes down from the Cherokee the Cherokee call them the moon people the Cherokee originated in the Great Lakes area when they moved to the North Carolina mountains they found these little gardens that were well tended, but they didn't see any evidence of people. And then eventually they saw these little people that would come out from the ground and tend the gardens by the light of the moon, which is why they were originally called moon people. Um, but then, um, you know, they eventually got the name of the Cherokee little people. Um, I don't think all the little people look the same. Uh, the ones in this area are described as looking more like the Cherokee people that we see today, living today. And if I were to rewrite my book, I probably would have to change the title because uh, I've talked to many people who um, still 
believe and have reported seeing or interacting with um, uh, little people to this day. Ah. So, uh, all right. What other details can you give me about their physical description? Okay. Here in this immediate area, we have the ones that look like the um, Cherokee. Then there was a type that had red whiskers, um, and from what I can piece together, must look more like the Irish leprechaun. The Cherokee people did not like those, and they would try to kill the the ones with the red whiskers. They only liked the ones that looked like the like themselves. Um, and then there's the reports of those moon people um, having a blue tint to their skin, perhaps because they were underground all the time. Um, uh, they also had the bigger eyes, which makes them sound alien. So those are three descriptions. The only ones that are remaining today, which indicates that they may still be alive in, in the most remote areas of the mountains, are the ones that look like the Cherokee. All right, we'll take a time out. Mary Joyce stays with us. Cherokee Little People Were Real. And the website, skyshipsovercashiers.com. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarri. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Mary Joyce stays with us. A remarkable legend, the Cherokee Little People, although we're probably talking about more than one, I guess, species of Little People. We have the Moon People that have a bluish tint. We have the Cherokee Little People that resemble the Cherokees, albeit in miniature form. And then we have, well, you describe them as resembling sort of leprechauns. They have red hair, red whiskers. What is it about that particular group did the Cherokee find so disagreeable that they would try to kill them? I do not know the answer to that, and I have asked it, and I, I just do not know how to answer it. Um, it is interesting that, um, I'll, I'll tell you one more thing about this. We had a major flood here in the 1940s, and I'm talking a uh, historic flood. And there was this little five-year-old boy who found uh, what he called a lead head. Uh, it was an oval-shaped uh, medallion. Um, they got washed away um, near a church on the old Tuckaseegee River. And um, it has like a leprechaun face on each side of it. And he called it his lead head because it was very heavy for its size. So it was only about an inch and a quarter um, in length. And it truly looked like a leprechaun. And in my book about uh, Cherokee Little People Were Real, I have a picture of that medallion that he found. Uh, next to a, a drawing of a uh, um, Irish leprechaun, and believe me, they look similar—the same kind of long, turned-up nose and the pointed ears. So um, the diversity with the little people is uh, great. And did they all create the same sort of tunnel-type structure? They all seem to have uh, a place underground, 
And uh, you and I briefly spoke about uh, my being contacted by somebody in eastern Tennessee who had uh, read my books and seen the website, and he said he had little people living on his land. Um, I called him up, and I talked to him, and he sounded sane, so I figured he wasn't just giving me some kind of a BS story. And two of us from the website, Evelyn Gordon and I, went to his land, and he has beautiful land that's been in his uh, family for generations. I think it's about 200 acres. Uh, it's both rolling hills by a river and a whole lot of wooded area. And when we went there, uh, he showed me the entrance uh, to where the little people go underground. Um, he talked about many things. I don't know how much you want to get into it, uh, but these little people look more like um, uh, Europeans. He said they wore uh, leather pants that were more like the Lederhosen and Lederhosen. And he said the shirts were like the military uh, wore in the West with the double-breasted buttons. Um, he talked about them living to be like um, uh, 200 years old um, and that the elderly people often walked with a walking stick. And as he's taking me back in the woods so I can get to where the entrance is to this place, he said, now look there. And along this narrow little tiny footpath, there are these little square imprints in the ground. And he said they have um, square cut walking sticks that the uh, elderly uh, little people use when they're walking in the woods. And uh, then we also found a, it was difficult to see, but we found a little footprint. Um, lots of things that just sounded very interesting. This man uh, comes from a line of uh, Uchi Indians. The Uchi Indians had pretty much disappeared. The original ones were described pretty much like looking like Europeans. And at the time I was doing the research on this, um, I'm always looking for other ways to confirm what I'm hearing. And in the process of looking for the confirmation, there was a brand new um, report that had been published by a man whose name escapes me right now, but he is an expert in southeastern Indians. And in this article, <clears throat> which he had just recently completed research on, there was a major flood in Europe, especially uh, in Ireland, um, many, maybe thousands of years ago. And the people fled by boat, and some of them ended up in the Savannah uh, River area. And then they went up the river into eastern Tennessee. Um, it, it, we've heard for all of our lives about the, the uh, Irish having these little people. So maybe uh, when they fled Ireland, some of the little people came with them. Uh, this man who looks totally white now, uh, but he, his father and his grandfather, all were able to communicate with the little people, uh, uh, mostly telepathic. But this man always carried three by five cards in his old pickup truck that he would use to travel the land. And um, he would sometimes write a question or a note, print it on a three by five card and leave it by their cave. And when he would come back, uh, there would be brief um, printed answers to his questions. But on one of the cards, which I still have, he gave it to me, um, it it says, please um, 
talked, you know, by tel telepathy uh, rather than writing. They didn't really like to write, um, but they were able to print in English. Interesting. And and what? Uh, my gosh. Da da da. <laughs> <laughs> just it seems like all I'm doing is telling you things that sound like science fiction or fairy tales, and yet there seems to be enough evidence to back up so much of this and the world that we live in, if we just look at what's around us on a daily basis, it's so mundane with what's really going on at deeper levels, no matter what the subject is. Well, you mentioned earlier these tunnels were about three and a half feet tall, so we're looking at maybe some sort of a humanoid that's two and a half, three feet tall, perhaps. How could they avoid detection for so long? I've been here for 20 years now. Uh, I've been in areas where they are. Uh, it's it's usually very wild um, areas where people just don't go. Um, so, for example, on the Cherokee Reservation, uh, the most reports about the little people is in an area called uh, Big Cove, and that is the most remote section on the reservation. And you have to go way, way up the mountain, uh, and that's where people still uh, seem to interact with the uh, with the little people. Uh, one woman, a young woman in her 20s uh, that I met at a restaurant got into a conversation with her and um, again eventually after trust is built up uh, I met with her and she told me about when she was a kid they were all playing hide-and-seek up near a trailer up in the Big Cove area where the family would go for um, picnics and, you know, uh, outdoor gatherings. And all the kids, including her, uh, were playing hide-and-seek. Well, she went to go hide in the um, bathtub of the trailer. And when she pulled back the curtain, there was a little uh, little person in there just grinning, but great big grin. Of course, it scared her to death, but uh, um, nevertheless, you still hear stories like that. You also hear stories about people who actually still put food out for the little people. And sometimes if they don't put it out, um, the little people will start throwing stones on the rooftop just to remind them that they're there, uh, which reminds me kind of a feral, like our feral cat that keeps coming to our door uh, to let us know that it needs some food. Right, right. So you have managed to gain the trust of the Cherokee people in your your area. So do they all believe in, in little people? For them, it's just common sense? The only reason that they have been quiet about it for so many years is that the white culture would laugh at it. So they started stories like, well, if you talk about the little people, you're going to die, which is totally stupid because uh, one of the men that I interviewed about uh, the little people at the university, he was in his very late 80s when I met him, he had been talking about little people since he was seven years old. His father had um, a mica mine, and um, four of the men that were working for his father went out um, again to work in the mica mine. And when they were digging, they were digging in one direction, and they came across an old tunnel uh, that was running perpendicular to their tunnel. And uh, uh, they were the men were all excited, came back to the house. So as a seven-year-old boy, he heard these men telling about finding about this little uh, tiny tunnel um, 
and he's been interested. He was interested in, in little people all of his life because of that. So clearly, you don't die if you talk about little people. Right, right. There might have been some parents who used it as a way to keep kids from going too far. Sure. And little people might get you. Right, right. Are there any stories of children being abducted by little people? I hear about them historically. I don't hear about any of that going on today. So I guess the answer is I've heard it historically. That's it. What about photographic evidence? Ah, we do have something. I've been trying to get some kind of photographic evidence uh, the whole time I've been up here and, and learned about the little people. And one of the um, people who follows the website uh, called me up and was all excited because they had a web um, what do you call it? A hunter's ca a camera stationed outside their place. Like a trail cam. And, uh, yeah, a trail cam. Yes. And apparently some kind of bird had triggered it. So what they found was in the background in the woods was what appeared to be a little person. And um, it's, uh, you know, it looks like somebody from the backside. It, this picture was taken in August. It was hot. Uh, from what we can see, it looks like the little person was not wearing clothing. Um, and I don't know what to say. Um, uh, the people who got the photo wondered if maybe it was just a spirit they were seeing in the woods. And so I did an interesting experiment. I took that photo and turned it up to high contrast. And when you do that, uh, anything that's living goes from, let's say, white to a magenta color. So then by contrast, I did the same thing with ghost pictures. And when you do that with a ghost picture, they, the ghosts still stay, stay white. So this little figure in the woods went to magenta, which indicates it was a very living, breathing creature, not a, a spirit or ghosty kind of uh, figure in the woods. But that was 20 years in the making before we got that photo. They are elusive. That is posted on the website. I wish that my memory was good enough to tell you where everything is, but sometimes if you type in our search bar, um, photo, Cherokee, little person, you might get to it that way. All right. Mary, you stay with us, and we will uh, come back on the other side and talk some more about little people, and perhaps, time permitting, we'll get into Bigfoot. A lot of strange things going on in the great state of North Carolina. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. 
Mary Joyce stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking Cherokee Little People. The book is Cherokee Little People Were Real. You were talking about a photograph that you've posted on your website, skyshipsovercashiers.com, and people will just have to log on to the site and kind of dive deep into the site. They'll find it, no doubt. But after all these years, one photograph, any other compelling evidence, a footprint, a bone fragment that is, you know, hasn't been hidden by the Smithsonian, anything at all? I do have photographs of uh, the little footprint that was found when I was in eastern Tennessee. I guess that doesn't tell you very much, but it was pretty convincing because this piece of property is, you know, people just can't get to it. It's rolling land on one side, but the, the woods are not accessible to anybody but the people that own the land. So uh, I was very fortunate to be able to go back there, but all I came back with is photos. Oh, I should add this. I told you about the man carrying the three-by-five cards, and he would leave notes at the entrance to their cave. Yes. Well, every time that the little people would return the answer, they would write it on the back side of the card, and then they would leave it with a little tiny crystal uh, stone on top of it, which I thought was kind of interesting. Hmm. Do you have any of those crystal stones? I do, I do. The man was, uh, I had them stored in um, a container that he gave me that's uh, originally used for 9 millimeter uh, bullets. So. <laughs> and where do they find them? Do they mine these crystals? Are, are, is there anything unusual about the crystals? Uh, at certain places around the mountains you can find them. They were not huge or something that would be like a collector's item. Typically they would be like, a, um, I don't know, half-inch uh, in, in length or maybe three quarters of an inch at the biggest. They were not polished or refined. They were just um, like fragments if you shattered something. Right, right. So they seem friendly enough, but it sounds all in all they just want to be left alone. Is that your assessment? Well, they're the ones that uh, were so uh, adamant. They wanted this man, uh, we called him Xander, wanted Xander to do something to protect them from and protect the world from the, what the people they call the dominators, which are apparently even worse than reptilians. Uh, uh, I don't know if, if they're the same as the draconians, or but they are very um, power-hungry and with almost like soulless evil creatures. And these little people are uh, very, very afraid of them. And uh, I think they're simply afraid they'll be eaten by them. Do you think these dominators are running these joint U.S. UFO bases in North Carolina and elsewhere? Oh, God, I hope not. How's that for an answer? Um, the most that I normally hear about are reptilians and greys. Uh, those uh, people, including myself, who've had contact with uh, the ones that are more spiritually evolved, uh, that would fall more into the category of the Pleiadians or the Nordics. Um, they don't abduct people. They don't um, uh, terrorize people. Uh, they make contact telepathically with you. Uh, they only appear if it's really necessary, and it's done in a way that doesn't scare the you-know-what out of somebody. Um, the reptilians and the greys could care less, and they uh, traumatize many, many people and scare them to death. Um, and so, personally, I want nothing to do with them. Well, if we're talking about uh, Nazis or, you know, the next generation of Nazis running these these bases, 
uh, it would stand to reason that they would, you know, like attracts like. They would be cavorting, no. they would be cavorting with the reptilians or the draconians, don't you think? Uh, probably. That makes all sense. Uh, the reptilians seems to be for sure. Yes. The draconians or the dominators, I do not know if that's a class unto itself. I do not know if they're involved uh, with the Nazi operation or not. I just simply do not know. <clears throat> All right. We'll uh, take one final time out, come back. And, uh, Mary, maybe we can delve into some Bigfoot. How How is that? That'll work. Mary Joyce, SkyShipsOverCashiers.com, the website. Cherokee Little People Were Real, the book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Sink ships, and sometimes corporations. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Mary Joyce stays with us. One final segment. What a trooper she is, hanging in for the full two hours. We've covered a lot of ground, including some of it underground, the underground UFO bases. In Hour 1, we spent a good portion of Hour 2 talking about uh, the Cherokee Little People, the legend of the Cherokee Little People. In the time remains that remains, let's talk about uh, Bigfoot. Um, North Carolina, of course, the Smoky Mountains, the, the uh, uh, I believe it's the Green Mountain, no, the Blue Mountains in, in uh, North Carolina as well. Um, I mean, this must just be, uh, you know, Bigfoot Central. The, it's so uh, mountain, mountainous and remote. Uh, how, how does North Carolina stack up uh, with the rest of the country in terms of Bigfoot sightings? Uh, most of the activity that you hear about is certainly in the western part of the country, in Oregon and Washington and in the, in the western mountains. Um, but we have them here, too. And again, like the little people, they're in the more remote areas. Um, they go to great lengths to uh, try to avoid us humans, though there are those who are able to make contact with them. We even did our own experiment here. Um, there was um, a place where the uh, Bigfoot were crossing on a regular basis. They would come down this very, very steep, steep mountain uh, where there were caves way back in there, and you had to be really, really a mountain climber to even get close to them. And they would come down and then cross to where there was a, uh, there was a gravel road, and across the gravel road there was like an apple tree, which and they would go and get the apples. There was also a pond, which they would go down to the pond. So in that area, we started doing an experiment with food, 
and uh, we would put out uh, different kinds of food uh, in one particular spot just to see what they liked. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was, and they did come around. And what was interesting, at one point, the food was put into a, um, a beer cooler, one that would take, hold it, a six pack. And the food was put in that and the lid was just cockeyed a bit and then it was left in front of a, like a tunnel through the laurel bushes. And, uh, the Bigfoot was very cautious of putting its hands apparently in anything and it, um, would tip it over and get the things out. But unlike any other creature, it put the lid back on. Um, a bear or any other animal you might think of would never put the lid back after dumping out the food content. Um, another occasion, uh, a woman who lives in the area had her garbage and garbage bags ready to take out the next day. Because um, around here you have to take your garbage to the dump. You don't have garbage service. And um, when she got up the next morning, um, the garbage bag had been carefully untied and certain things taken out of it. Uh, again, that is not the behavior of a regular animal. A regular animal would have torn the bag open, but this was, you know, carefully untied. So there's no other people around, so we're left thinking that uh, uh, it was probably the Bigfoot. I think she also heard some Bigfoot sounds uh, that night, so that kind of made it kind of conclusive. And how about you? Any close uh, uh, encounters with, with Bigfoot? I have seen, um, uh, well, I can tell you a couple things firsthand. One, I've seen the footprints, you know, fresh footprints, and some of those I've taken pictures and put them on the website under the category ETs, Bigfoot, and other beings. Um, then there was um, a mountain man, young man, probably in his 40s, uh, not an old mountain man, and he took me to a place where uh, he would go when he would hunt, and there was a cave where he said the Bigfoot would take shelter. And to get there, we went way up to the top of a mountain on a gra and we ended up on a gravel road. Then we walked about a half mile from the road uh, to where this cave was. When we first started walking into this, we, we heard this uh, sound that sounded like a bird but didn't really sound like a bird. And then further down the path in the direction we were headed, uh, there was an answer, the same kind of mechanical, kind of different um, bird sound. After that, everything went silent. And I, to this day, feel like one Bigfoot was on guard letting know the other ones know that there are some people headed in their direction. And uh, I saw the footprints there. I saw the caves. Uh, and again, those have been posted on, on the website. And how about the... Uh, I've, also lost, I've also lost some money on Bigfoot. Um, we... Uh, uh, we had a hair sample, a pretty good hair sample. And if people want to see that, just type in Valley of the Bigfoot. And that's a pretty complete story. Um, I sent some of that off to uh, a DNA lab. And um, all they could tell me was that the maternal side was uh, human. Uh, there was no nuclear DNA in uh, the sample that we had. Uh, if you followed the, the work of Dr. Melba Ketchum and some yes. other ones since then, yes. 
the uniqueness of the Bigfoot is found on the paternal side, which can only be found in the nuclear DNA. So in other words, you'd have to have the hair follicle in order to get that. It wouldn't be enough just to have the hair strands. Um, so we spent some money having that done. Another time, we found some very unusual poop beneath the, I believe I should call it scat, uh, <laughs> beneath this apple tree I've referred to. And since we'd seen so many Bigfoot prints in that area, we decided to send that again to uh, the DNA lab. Well, once again, I lost some money because um, it um, proved to be, I think, a white wolf or a white fox. I think it was a, or a gray fox. And um, so I have not done well in spending my money on, on DNA samples. I will be very cautious before I send it in. <laughs> well, don't be dissuaded. Keep keep uh, keep fighting the good fight. Um, and what about the uh, the the, the tales, uh, the legends of of Sasquatch having some psychic ability? You mentioned the little people communicating telepathically. We also hear this characteristic ascribed to Bigfoot. Big, what do you think of that? Big, yes, I agree. Bigfoot uh, does. Um, you know, communicate that way. They also make uh, regular physical sounds. And again, in that ET and Bigfoot section that we have on the website, we have um, a really great recording. We don't get credit for it, but uh, uh, the Bigfoot is sounding like uh, a samurai warrior. And there are different words that have sometimes been picked up of different languages in uh, the Bigfoot language. And it's kind of fascinating to... Uh, to listen to that, uh, the man who did it, and I'm not going to be able to think of his name right now, but he uh, did um, voice analysis and things for the government when he worked, uh, you know, for the military, and has great credentials, and it's fascinating to hear it. Uh, so they communicate at two levels, both telepathically and in a very physical way. Uh, also, we hear about the connection or association between Bigfoot and UFOs. What can you tell me about that? Well, I can tell you that we are seeing the Bigfoot in the same areas that we see lots of UFOs. Uh, so there are people who, like um, Kiwani, who's done so much research, like a lifetime's worth of research on the Bigfoot, and he definitely makes the declaration that there is a connection. Um, I don't have anything firsthand that would be able, would allow me to definitely say that, except we see these two two things in the same area repeatedly. Do you care to speculate what might be going on? Are they hitching a ride? What's going on? Hmm, now we're playing guessing games. Um, there's, there's only theories out there. There's theories that um, the Bigfoot are the, the eyes on the ground uh, or some in the in the ships. Uh, that probably sounds as good as anything else. Um, perhaps the Bigfoot are simply being protected by the ships. Um, I don't know. What is it about North Carolina? Uh, I mean, there are certain locations around the United States. You know, we hear about Skinwalker's Ranch. I recently did a show on southwestern Pennsylvania. That seems to be a hot spot for paranormal activity. What is it about North Carolina, do you think? Um, I think that one, one possibility is the fact that beneath these mountains, there are caverns and caves. 
So those can be used or expanded on. The people who do the underground bases, perhaps they start with an underground cavern and then it expands from there. Um, the Bigfoot uh, often shelter in caves and uh, underground, so uh, you know it's a good survival type place. Um, there is a mountain here called Whiteside Mountain. It is a crystal mountain, and it is speculated that uh, uh, that's used as an omni by the by the ships that come in. Uh, and as you know, the crystal is used even to this day, I think, in computers and uh, electrical equipment of different kinds. So maybe it's the the minerals that are here. Um, and as with most things, there's probably more than one reason things happen. It's never just one thing usually. Hmm. And what are you working on now? What's uh, what's your next project? Well, the thing I'd like to tell your your listeners is that we posted a, a video. It's on the homepage. It's I think one, two, three, four. It's the fifth from the top right now on the right-hand side. We have something. See what's new on this website. Fifth item down, it's called Video Interview About the Big About Bigfoot Encounter. And it um, elaborates a bit on uh, what we uh, encountered uh, in the Valley of the Bigfoot. It is one of the more dramatic stories that we have with the Bigfoot. Um, and I think most people would find it very interesting. The original article can also be found just by typing in Valley of the Bigfoot. Finally, just tell me a little bit about uh, your book, Tangible Evidence of Jesus Left Behind, or Left Behind for Us to Find. What we've done is, um, it is information uh, about Jesus that goes beyond the Bible, and it's things that have been discovered by scientists and archaeologists, and just great um, evidence that's um, more like a detective uh, would be convinced of the information. Would that be? Would and that include so the? Sh- would that include the Shroud of Turin? We do cover that. That's just one of the things that we cover. We cover the Jesus family tomb, um, which again is probably, I don't know if we have time to talk about that or not, but it's kind of interesting how um, concrete evidence is coming up for the man. There was a, stop me if you want to go in a different direction. No, no, just keep um, going. We have a couple minutes here. Uh, archaeologists uh, found what they call the family tomb of Jesus, and during uh, the time of Jesus, uh, during a hundred-year period, they, the Jews had a very unique burial custom, which did not exist before and has not existed since. And what they would do is outside the walls of Jerusalem, they would cut a tomb for the family into the side of a, a mountain. The center area would be like large square entrance type place, and three walls would have niches in them. When somebody died, they laid them out in that big room, closed up the tomb until all the soft material had disappeared. They would come back a year later and put the bones in a a stone box called an ossuary. Then those ossuaries would be placed in the niches along the side of the big room. The most important person was buried to the right as you walked in the door. And uh, in that first niche, there are three ossuaries all with inscriptions on them. One is Jesus, son of Joseph. One is um, the, the familiar nickname for Mary, um, and it's preceded by uh, the name Mar, which is for, um, it's uh, 
the equivalent of a lord for a woman. So she has a title. And so we have a Mary with a title in the same tomb with or niche with Jesus. And the third one is Judah, son of Jesus. In the other notches or niches, there are other family members that people would recognize the names from the Old Testament. Um, you know, like uh, there's one for his brother Joseph, who he called Josie. That was a nickname that Jesus gave him. Josie is inscribed on that one particular box, not the full name. That was not the custom. The custom at that time was to uh, do full names and no nicknames. So here are uh, two uh, nicknames that are used, one for Mary and one for uh, Joseph, the brother. Um, and they were nicknames that Jesus used for um, his family members. Fascinating. Well, next time we have you on, Mary, we'll delve into that in a little more detail. That's tangible evidence of Jesus left behind for us to find. And, of course, Cherokee little people were real. And uh, underground bases hidden in North Carolina. The uh, The website, again, is skyshipsovercashiers.com. Uh, Mary Joyce, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a joy to talk to you. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White. I'm back next week with Sue Lindauer to talk about 9-11 cover-ups. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.